Welcome to The Banker Midweek, your weekly look at what the industry is talking about, offering information bankers like you need to know. Hello, and welcome to The Banker Midweek, a Valentine's Day special (laughs) midweek. Um, Where are my chocolates? They have not arrived yet. They will come soon. They're obviously in the post. Uh, So this week, the editors are myself, Liz Lumley, and my colleague, John Everington. Hello, John. Hello, Liz. I'm terribly sorry I ate the chocolates before you arrived. Oh, watched. man, you like my son. <laughs> uh, so as our audience knows, The Banker Midweek is our weekly sit-down about what is happening now, what the industry is chatting about, and what bankers like you need to know. And of course, all of these things influence current and future stories on thebanker.com. So today we're going to talk about gray lists. Uh, And this story actually is on thebanker.com right now. And it's one of your stories, John. It's called Mm -hmm. Assessing the Impact of FATF. FATF's gray list. It's those acronyms that Mm -hmm. you have to say. So I'll give a little little, uh, summary before we get into some of the questions. So at a glance, uh, FATF will make rulings on gray and blacklisted jurisdictions in the first of its triannual plenaries next week in Paris. Uh, Some question the relevance of the gray list as compliance departments become ever more sophisticated, and the body's global standards are still seen as vital in the fight against international financial crime. So there are right at the moment 23 jurisdictions on the gray list, uh, but about a third have expressed confidence that they will be coming off following the plenary next week. So John, what is a gray list? <laughs> well, okay, let's kind of dial it back a little bit. So um, FATF, for those who don't know, it's the Financial Action Task Force. It was set up in 1989 by the G7, um, very much looking at sort of international financial crime, particularly money laundering, um, was its first um, sort of real kind of uh, thing that it was tackling. That kind of is, that remit has been expanded over the years, particularly after 9-11. Um, it kind of, it got into sort of the ter- um terrorism financing sort of countering that and then beyond that sort of its remit has been expanded and expanded beyond then um, the proliferation of nuclear weapons the funding of uh, nuclear weapons uh, also virtual assets has kind of figured on it on its radar uh, more recently as well so what FATF has one list which is called jurisdictions under increased monitoring which actually most people know as the gray list <laughs> And so, and this list is um, what FATF describes as countries or jurisdictions with serious strategic deficiencies to counter money laundering, terrorist financing, and financing of proliferation. And so, um, it's think, like those um, those uh, school reports, you know, needs and needs improving or. or it's that sort of thing, yeah. yeah. I did, I, I, I did sort of um, put, I did put it in my my piece as as actually sort of the naughty list, as it mm-hmm. were. So that is actually, I mean, to be fair to FATF and also to those that go onto it, that is a bit of a simplification. Essentially, what happens is states will have their kind of money laundering controls and enforcement um, regimes kind of assessed, and then sort of if there are deficiencies there. FATF will say that it will kind of work with them, as it were. And I think sort of really, I mean, we had uh, had an interview with T. Raja Kumar, who is the current president of FATF, and he was really at pains to say it's really sort of, it's really about kind of helping countries. It's not supposed to shame them. Here's what he said. You know, when a country is evaluated and is found to have fundamental gaps in its AML CFT system, then what happens is we sit down with that country, they have a year to essentially address those fundamental gaps. 
Now, these are not trivial gaps. I mean, these are fundamental ones, which, again, uh, criminals, terrorists are very quick to exploit. Um, and the concern is that if these fundamental gaps are not addressed quickly, effectively, uh, it is space for terrorists and criminals to exploit. You know that uh, there's a real risk that uh, they would be uh, leveraging these weaknesses to essentially move money, launder proceeds of crime, and so on. And this carries a lot of risk to the entire global financial system. Now, a couple of things I just want to emphasize at the outset. One is that this is not a punitive process. It is actually one that is meant to help the country with these fundamental deficiencies in their system. It helps them to very sharply identify what the key gaps are. And we work very closely with these countries to then develop a, an action plan. And this action plan is agreed upon by the country in cons that is, uh, you know, um, you know, potentially, uh, you know, at risk of being graylisted. Um, and essentially, the country then would systematically have to go through the action plan, implement the action items, and if they successfully implement those action items, they can be moved out of the gray list. What are the benefits to that country? One is there would be greater confidence in the uh, entire financial system, uh, and this potentially could then lead to greater investor confidence in terms of investing in that country. It also allows that country to establish a very solid foundation to enable economic growth. Then why is this naughty list important then? Well, this is the sort of what I wanted to go into in, in my feature. Um, I think first and foremost, you don't want to really be a country that is kind of on something called the grey list. It's, I mean, it's, I mean, okay, it's jurisdictions under increased monitoring, but everybody knows it as the grey list. So you don't really, it's not a kind of a nice list to be on, as it mm. were. I mean, even sort of like kind of the president said, it's not a punitive measure, but at the same time, being on that list, it kind of, it flags the world. There are some issues here that um, you know, need to be dealt with. Is, so, is that, sorry, sorry for my ignorance, but... Um, it, is it is it officially called the grey list or is it is that what everyone just refers to it as? It is what everyone refers to it as. And I mean, FATF now actually put it under, I mean, when, when you have the list of those jurisdiction under, jurisdictions under increased monitoring, mm -hmm. it also says also known as the grey list. They've right. just kind of accepted it, that being mm -hmm. what it is. But also it has to be said that, I mean, he says that it's not a punitive measure. And I mean, and I think that's fair. But at the same time, that reputational kind of knock for going on that list is an incentive to get on, get off it, is it? Um, mm. as well and I mean I think talking to sort of some folk from the um, for the feature I mean talking um, to sort of the Maltese Bankers Association um, uh, basically they were saying that going onto the going onto the grey list it was a blow but it did actually highlight things that needed to, to change mm. um, to, a, to a certain extent within the banking sector but more actually kind of within the sort of the greater legal frameworks of, of, of the country mm. and therefore they kind of said I mean actually it was a good kick which mm. kind of like got us to sort of like to where we needed to go. So there is a question about beyond that reputation, whether it makes a sort of a difference kind of at, at sort of like the granular, granular level, at the banking level is another matter in terms of correspondent banking. Um, again, sort of we talked to David Schwartz, 
who um, is from FIBA, who sort of kind of represents American banks who do a lot of um, work with with the with the Caribbean and Latin America. Panama was on the blacklist for a little while, has now come off it. But during the time that they were on the blacklist, far from kind of correspondent banking relationships being terminated, there were actually new ones added during that time, mm. because kind of come because banks who were from outside. They saw Panama as a key market and, OK, they needed to do a little bit more compliance work in some of those relationships, but they were important enough to maintain. Mm-hmm. And again, just because a com- country like the UAE, second largest economy in the in Middle East, goes onto the grey list, hoping to come off it next week, just because it's on the grey list doesn't necessarily mean that those those banking relationships are going to be terminated or going to be sort of like mm. adversely affected. It's not like the blacklist. <laughs> Correct, yes. No, there is also the blacklist, which is the very, very naughty step, <laughs> as I kind of put it in the thing. And that consists of Iran, North Korea and Myanmar. So, I mean, we're talking about a very much a different category. Yeah. I think of, you, do, of, you don't have to know anything about banking to have picked those three countries. Exactly. To put them on the blacklist. Yeah. yeah. So beyond the gray list, you know, what are some of the big challenges that, that, that FAT, the FATF members are going to be discussing in Paris next week. Yeah, I mean, again, this is something that I asked T. Raja Kumar. And I mean, he really sort of mentioned, I mean, particularly it's the sort of, I mean, you know this from your work in like kind of in digital kind of finance, Liz. I mean, just the sheer pace of change that's kind of, that is happening within sort of, within the financial sector in terms of new technology and sort of like new, new technology developments. Um, again, when I spoke to him, he mentioned just, it's really a challenge for people to keep on top of those challenges. Here's what he had to say. So we know that technology brings many opportunities with it. And we are seeing the benefits of technology in the financial sector. Um, and some of the things that you know are positives include financial inclusion, uh, you know, faster, cheaper, uh, safer, more secure payment systems. But the rapid changes that we are seeing, uh, the sheer speed of it uh, means that regulators, law enforcement, that we have to get up to speed um, and be really aware of what the critical risks are um, and how best to then deal with these challenges. Um, we know, you know, on the converse side, there are opportunities, but there are also risks and threats. And criminals, terrorists, the corrupt are very quick to spot and capitalize on these weaknesses to essentially then move monies uh, across jurisdictions, um, all in an effort to then stymie law enforcement. Um, So it really behoves all of us, you know, operating in this space, both on the government sector side, as well as from the private sector, to get up to speed on the current set of risks and challenges. And I think there's virtue in strong collaboration between the public sector and the private sector to sit together, take a look at uh, what is happening out there, uh, common threats, common challenges that confront uh, both of us, and then you know look at potential solutions that will essentially help us address uh, these risks, these uh, challenges. So, since we're talking about technology, you know, what are what is Fed, FedF's view about the role of? Of, of cryptocurrencies and, and virtual assets in this, you know, that they've always seemed to have played a place in international financial crime. You know, what, what are the members' view? What do they say? Indeed, yeah. And I think we've discussed this before in terms, mm. I mean, again, if you talk to a sort of um, the crypto boosters out there, the Bitcoin boosters, they'll mm. say, 
Okay, Bitcoin well, boosters. Yes, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I mean, or just all the sort of the the crypto utopias. They'll say that I mean, okay, it's actually a very safe kind of like it's a safe kind of way of, sort of like doing business. Everything is on chain. It's so sort of, you can see it there. But then sort of there's the opposite side that's saying that actually sort of you do have kind of cryptocurrencies when you think about scams and such. I mean, when people will kind of demand payment in Bitcoin um, sort of uh, for hacks and things like that, it is something that needs to be kind of monitored. So it was, um, it, I mean, again, uh, T. Rajakumar, he kind of had a very kind of um, sort of balanced view on this, just looking at the sort of pros, but also at the cons. And also he had some interesting recommendations. Here's what he had to say. On one hand, we know the opportunities that uh, virtual assets actually uh, bring. Um, if you think about payment systems, for example, we are seeing faster, cheaper, um, safer uh, payment systems. But one of the things that I want to highlight is that we need compliance by design and all the developers of these systems need to think about AML CFT upfront and not as an afterthought, just before you hit the market. Um, it has to be something that is so fundamental that you essentially plan for it. And then when you roll it out, consumers then have the benefit of, of, of it. But at the same time, there's assurance in terms of safety and security and that it is not going to be abused for criminal and terrorism purposes. And even if you know, there is activity of that sort, then this is then discoverable. So the FedEx travel rule, for example, requires disclosure requirements, uh, puts in place disclosure requirements about the sender and the receiver of the information, of, of the assets. Right? Uh, and I think this is really crucial uh, because it helps law enforcement, uh, you know, and uh, the security agencies be more effective in the fight against crime and terrorism. And I think it was very interesting to hear him talking about really that sort of need for compliance to be baked into um, to these virtual assets mm. and not just tacked on. And I think this is where you have a kind of fundamental divergence once again from, again, the crypto utopists who kind of like to think of cryptocurrency as something that is not under the control of governments or international regulators and just and can be used freely and such but then sort of the regulators will say well if you're kind of financing crime and if you're kind of um, allowing these scams to happen you really need to have regulatory controls baked in so mm. again it's that central tension that we that so often comes up that that um that he he um so he talked about quite nicely i thought yeah it, it's really interesting despite the culture of cryptocurrencies being this very libertarian culture you know, it is programmable money. So you mm -hmm. can program in compliance, which yep. is what a lot of people are pushing for right now. And what makes a lot of people kind of scared about sort of, again, is this going to enable people to sort of find out what kind of sandwiches we're eating <laughs> that we're getting from Pret? Of course, yes. All central banks want to know what kind of sandwiches you're eating mm -hmm. <laughs> on that bombshell. So that's really fascinating, John. Uh, so uh, as, as I mentioned at the start of our conversation, you can see John's story on uh, the Paris meeting of FETF uh, on thebanker.com right now. So this is another story which came up this week, um, which I wanted to mention, which is uh, Barclays has bought the banking business of Tesco, which is one of the UK's largest supermarkets, for about £600 million in a deal. And it's really interesting because it's kind of like one of these 
full circle stories for me. So I'll just I'll just do the the really brief for people that that don't know and and who aren't in the UK um, news story. The bank said on Friday it would take on Tesco banks, credit cards, and unsecured personal loans, totaling about eight point three billion pounds of lending business. It has also signed a ten year distribution deal to sell financial products under the Tesco brand. Tesco will keep the insurance, ATMs, travel money, and gift card operations all very much um, customer-facing applications. This is also following uh, Sainsbury's, which is another big supermarket here in the UK, is planned a phased withdrawal from its banking business. And the Cooperative Bank uh, last month entered exclusive talks to merge with the Coventry Building Society. So it's interesting. When I, I tried looking for this, when when the supermarkets in the UK first started offering banking services, they were white-labeled, which is why I, I call this full circle. I think the original white-labeled bank for Tesco was RBS, and then they kind of took the banking business inside. And this was all very much a part of um, – where very much in that culture of banks need to be disintermediated, they need to be disrupted, banking needs to be brought where the customers are. Of course, you can see supermarkets are where most customers spend a lot of time. Sometimes I think I should just send my paycheck directly to Sainsbury's. <laughs> uh, that would help out. But it would it, – so it, it made sense in that culture of where we're going, we don't need banks. You know, mm. people need banking services. They don't need banks. Um, and it's it's interesting to see how that's played out where it's now going back to that kind of white-labeled service. The Tesco Bank customers are now going to be Barclays Bank customers. Um, And this idea that banks handle banking services is something that technology and culture and marketing and jumping innovation gurus have not managed to crack, and Mm. not just in the UK, um, but around the world. Um, But some people have commented saying that this is is about supermarkets – Kind of uh, divesting their their uh, sort of uh, decision to sell its banking practice is about divesting non core businesses to focus on their retail offerings, which is what I think in this new world of high interest rates, a lot of businesses are starting to try to focus on on just their core offerings of, you know, selling wine and and fruit and milk and and all that all that good stuff. But it, it's interesting to see what happens in the long term. <laughs> We're going, yeah. I mean, yeah, it makes sense. We have banking where people are, but it just even though our banks are disappearing from the high street, uh, people still kind of want a, a secure regulated ben- banking ent- entity to be handling their finances. So um, what do you think? Yeah, and I mean, I think, again, sort of uh, reading in um, in the sort of the Lex column of the FT quite recently, just talked about, again, you can kind of cross-sell kind of products kind of like from one side to the other mm. and such. But to I mean, again, it's, yeah... It's, I mean, it's a, it's a challenging offering. So, yeah. I mean, I saw. Th- I I swear to God, this is another thing. I'm. This is this is where I'm bad at the podcast stuff that I remember hearing, and I couldn't find it on Google. But I remember sitting in a conference, and a guy from Tesco Bank was on the panel, and he said, they use information from your Tesco Club card, for credit ratings. Mm. And and everyone was like, yeah, of course, of course they do that. It's like, well, what if you you know do your weekly shop at Sainsbury's and you only buy wine and cigarettes at Tesco. <laughs> it's like... Okay. Well, maybe if you bought caviar from Tesco, they'll give you a better deal. I, I, don't, I don't know. Anyway, anyway, please send answers on a postcard if that is true, whether Tesco Bank ever used club mm. card information for credit ratings. Um, but yeah, I think that's uh, that's uh, that's the banker midweek this week. For me, John? Very good. And for me as well. Yeah, did you get some roses and candy for your wife? 
I think I probably better go out and do that after. Do that right now. Yes, be one of those men on the train on the way home. Yes. Excellent. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to The Banker Midweek, part of the portfolio of podcasts from the editorial team at The Banker, available on thebanker.com and wherever you get your podcast fix. Search on The Banker Podcasts to listen to more.